Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. I'm Melanie Rosen, and I'd like to listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, and that's 8.55 on your AM band. Good afternoon, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today I'm speaking with Professor Helen Froh about the moral distinction between killing and letting die. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Beth. Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Well, I'm a philosopher. I work at Stockholm University in Sweden, and I focus um, on permissible harming, kind of broadly construed. So a lot of my work has been in the ethics of war, um, thinking about the ethics of self-defense, and also thinking about today's topic, so the distinction between um, doing and allowing or, or killing and letting die. Right. What was it that inspired you to study the moral distinction between killing and letting die? Well, I, I started my PhD thinking about issues in bioethics. And so I was working on euthanasia where the distinction between killing and letting die um, underpins the distinction between active and, and passive euthanasia, which traditionally has been taken to be really significant in the permissibility of bringing about the end of somebody's life. So there's been a kind of tradition that if you're say, switching off a machine and, and just sort of withdrawing aid or failing to sustain life, that is, you know, letting someone die, then what you do is permissible. But if you were to, say, give someone a lethal injection, you'd be killing them. So that would be active euthanasia and that that would be immoral and ought to be illegal. So it's been a really kind of legally important distinction in, in lots of cases. But I was particularly interested in the, in the bioethical cases where we think that, we're, that not just the fact that we bring about someone's death, Precisely how we do it seems to be important. I remember my daughter's great grandmother, and she was in in hospital, and she wasn't eating. And I suggested to the staff there that they feed her intravenously or on the nose feed, and they said, "No, we're just keeping her as comfortable as possible." And and I thought, well, is withdrawing food a form of killing someone or letting them die. And then, yeah, and also then the question is, does it matter? So it does seem a bit... There's some, certainly some cases, I mean, I, I'm somebody who's a, a proponent of the distinction between killing and letting die, so I do think it, it, it's morally important. But I also think there are cases in which it's permissible to kill somebody. So one of the sort of mistakes I think there's been in the euthanasia literature is thinking that this distinction really mattered for the permissibility of euthanasia. 
So I think that there kind of there has been a sort of distraction in on these questions of whether or not feeding someone or not feeding them counts as killing them. When really what we should be asking is, is it permissible to stop feeding this person? And be less concerned perhaps about whether that would be active or passively euthanizing them. Mm, that's a good point. Could you tell us about Michael Tooley's argument? Sure. So Tooley wrote a paper in which he defends the idea that actually there isn't really a morally significant distinction between killing a person and letting them die. And he does this by kind of looking at the under, underlying causal structures of these, these, these cases. And he argues that it doesn't make any moral difference whether you initiate a causal sequence, so kick the sequence off, or if you just refrain from interfering in the sequence once it's underway. And he calls this the moral symmetry principle to sort of reflect the idea these things are just kind of on a moral path. And he thinks that if the moral symmetry principle is true, then there can't be any morally significant difference between killing a person and letting them die. What is the relevance of the poison whiskey scenario? So this is one of Tooley's cases in which he tries to show that when we hold fixed things like the outcome or the intention or the motivation or character of a person, when we kind of keep those things constant... He thinks that our intuitions don't actually support any distinction between killing and letting die. So a lot of the kind of philosophical discussion of these of this distinction has kind of proceeded from the idea that people seem to have this intuitive sense that killing someone's much worse than failing to save them. But who really thinks this is a mistake and that what our, our intuitions are tracking are just things like the reason why someone acts or fails to act and perhaps people who kill tend to be more culpable and so on. And so it's really the culpability that our, our intuitions are picking out rather than something kind of intrinsically worse about killing. And so he imagines a case, which is the poison whiskey case, where he tries to strip those things away. So he imagines that we just have two brothers, both of whom are kind of independently plotting to kill their father by poisoning his whiskey. And they're doing this just purely for financial gain. They want to, to inherit his money. And the first brother poisons the whiskey. The second brother realizes that now he doesn't need to poison the whiskey, but what he does is just fails to tell his father and then he fails to provide an antidote that he has. And then the father dies. And Tully's claim is that when you kind of hold constant things like the reasons why they're acting, our intuitions don't suggest that there's a distinction between what the two brothers do, that he thinks that we just perceive them as being on a moral path. It's quite quite interesting, that scenario, when you look at, well, people who have pets and they're sort of getting to the end of their life. And I suppose somebody who just lets them die, that could be a long, slow, painful death, whereas somebody who takes the animal in and, and has it put to sleep, well, they're really killing the animal, but they're, they're doing it out of kindness. Yeah, I mean, that's, and this, this is one of the sort of kind of ways in which people have argued for the permissibility of euthanasia is that we, when it comes to animals, we think it would be really cruel to let somebody have a long, slow, lingering death. And we, of course, think it's much better to take them to the rest and have them painlessly you know, put to sleep, as we say, but killed, basically painlessly killed. And yet with, with humans, we take this kind of the reverse approach that uh, what morality demands is somehow the long, lingering death and that the the painless, quick death would be impermissible. So it's certainly, certainly there can be cases of letting someone die or letting an animal die, which are worse than killing them. That certainly seems true. I guess what people like me entirely disagree about is that I still think that 
in general, it's worse to kill, and that that's because killing itself is worse sort of because of its intrinsic features. Whereas Tully would think the kind of the, the, the means by which the death comes about just isn't very important, and that all that matters is just the motivations and the outcomes and so on. Could you explain about enemy torture? Um, so this is uh, another of Tully's cases, which describes a possible objection that Tully's anticipating people might have to his view because this is a case in which our intuitions do support a significant difference between somebody who causes harm and somebody who fails to prevent harm. And so one of the problems with doing this kind of case-based type of philosophy is that people can always come up with sort of cases that, that support the intuitions they're trying to pump. So in the enemy torture case, we imagine that we've got a spy who's been captured by the enemy, and the spy refuses to divulge the information that the enemy wants, even though he knows that the enemy is going to torture a child if he keeps quiet. And most people in this case aren't going to think that the spy and the enemy are equally responsible for the torture, or that the sort of the spy's failure to prevent the torture is just as if he's is just the same as if he's torturing the child himself. So this seems to be a case in which the distinction between causing harm and allowing harm uh, does make a moral difference. Now, Tully realizes that he needs to be able to just sort of say something about cases like this. So he wants to distinguish between the, 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 the captor and, and the spy. Um, and so he tries to do this by emphasizing that his symmetry principle holds only in the cases where there's kind of... Where he, or is, only, is only claiming that there's moral parity between initiating a causal process yourself and interfering with a... Uh, refraining from interfering with a causal process. So... He says he's not defending the claim that it's as wrong to refrain from preventing somebody else from initiating a causal process as it is to initiate the process itself. So what, I mean, what the idea here must be is that somehow the spy who, who refrains from preventing the capture from starting to torture the child isn't on a par with starting to torture the child himself. So Tully's trying to say, look, my principle doesn't have these sort of implausible implications in the enemy torture case because I'm interested in kind of interfering with existing causal processes and I'm not saying that failing to prevent someone else from starting a causal process is the same as, as starting it yourself. But it's not a very good response because we could just imagine that the torture's already started. So you can imagine that Maybe you've got this child being kind of slowly stretched on like an automated rack or something like that, right? So the torture's ongoing. And now if, if, the, if the spy were to divulge the information, then he'd be ref if he fails to do that, then he's refraining from interfering with the causal process that's already underway rather than interfering, refraining from interfering with the initiation of the process. But it's hard to see well, how that makes any difference to what the spy does. So it seems like whether he acts sort of how wrongly he acts or how rightly he acts doesn't seem to depend on whether the child's already being tortured or whether the torture's about to start. So tell us about the case of the pram and the two causal processes. Um, so the, the pram case is just kind of an elaboration on, on um, what's wrong with what Tully says about the, the torture case, really. So in my paper, I imagine one case in which got a woman called Anna who's pushing a baby in a pram down a hill. So she pushes it so that the pram freewheels towards the lake and so it's going to go into the lake and the baby's going to drown. And then we can have a second case in which Anna is pushing the pram just across flat ground towards the lake so she's just walking it towards the lake. 
And we can imagine that there's a bystander watching Betty, and in both of these cases, Betty does nothing. Now, Tully's view would imply that Betty acts less wrongly in the second case, because in order to stop Anna in the second case, where she's kind of continually pushing the pram, Betty would have to interfere. She's interfering, she's refraining from interfering with an existing causal process. Whereas in the first case, where Anna's just kind of shoved the, the pram down the hill and it's freewheeling, Betty wouldn't have to interfere with Anna in those cases in order to stop the pram. And so Tully thinks that there's a kind of moral difference between these cases. But it seems, again, it seems implausible that there's a difference here. It seems to me like Betty acts equally wrongly if she doesn't save the baby in either case. It doesn't matter whether the pram is freewheeling or whether it's being pushed. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Helen Froh about the moral distinction between killing and letting die. What is Tooley's machine case? Tooley's machine case is it's another example he uses to try and show that there's no important difference between killing a person and letting them die. So he imagines that we've got two children, I think they're called John and Mary, um, and there's a gas canister in the machine that's about to release poison gas into the chamber that, that Mary's trapped in. And a bystander comes along and they can press a button that will move the gas canister so that it's, it will release the gas into the chamber where John is trapped. And Tully says it just can't make any difference whether the bystander presses the button or not. It doesn't make any moral difference whether they press the button so that they kill John or they don't press the button and they let Mary die. So this is another case in which he's trying to sort of push the idea that when you hold everything equal, so the harm is equal, you've got two innocent people who are going to die, or one of them is going to die and they're equally innocent. When we hold all of those things equal, he wants to say it just doesn't matter whether you push the button or not. It'd be really weird to think that it, it was really morally important. How is self-defence relevant? So one of the ways in which I think we can support the idea that in something like the machine case, it does make a difference whether you're killing or letting die is to think about what we would allow the children in this case to do to the third party who can press the button. So it seems like if... So imagine that one of the children's got a concealed weapon, so they can kill the third party when they see that he's about to press the button. So the idea here is that it looks like if, if say, Mary sees that the third party is not going to press the button and is just going to let her die, it wouldn't be permissible for her to use any kind of serious force against the third party in order to force him to save her. So imagine that Mary could, I don't know, shoot the, the third party in the leg and then she threatens to shoot him in the other leg if he doesn't press the button and kill John. It looks like that would be impermissible. But imagine that John sees that the third party is about to press the button and, that, and, and therefore going to kill him. It seems like it would be permissible for John to kill the third party to save his own life. So when he sees this guy's about to push the button and he's going to kill him, it looks like he just has a straightforward self-defense justification for killing this guy. So the fact that... There's a difference in what we can do to people when it comes to our defensive rights, depending on whether there's someone who's going to cause harm to us or just fail to prevent harm to us, suggests that there is a morally significant difference between pushing the button and not pushing the button in the machine case.
Why do you think we are less responsible for the deaths we allow than for the deaths we cause? So, I mean, I don't really have a kind of a really carefully worked out substantial view on the doing and allowing distinction. Um, I think it's, it's something that probably has kind of various overlapping sources of support. Um, but, but one thought is that, which I find quite plausible, is that when I harm a person, I typically make her worse off than she would have been in my absence. But when I allow harm to a person, I don't make her any worse off than she would have been, say, had I never existed. And it seems to be worth to involve people in my plans in a way that makes them worse off against their will than to kind of just leave them as they would be if I didn't involve them in my plans. So I think that that's one way to think about the kind of why we might think we're more responsible for the harms that we cause is that we we've kind of uh, made others worse off for our presence in a way that's not true and we just fail to save them. Um, but I don't think we're doing an, an allowing distinction is just about what we're responsible for. It's also about kind of what, what it would mean for agents if we didn't distinguish between duties to, to rescue, say, and duties not to harm. So requiring people to act is often much more demanding than demanding that they, re, they refrain from acting. So telling people to rescue is often going to be much more demanding than telling them to not to kill people. So Victor Tadros has a, a nice way of putting this where we think about kind of the importance of letting agents pursue their own ends and sort of shape their own lives and so on. So requiring people to act, so requiring people to save, forces them to adopt an end and then kind of rules out all of the other options. But prohibiting people from harming just kind of rules out that one option, but it leaves you free to like choose from all of the other options that you have. So... It's a bit like if, if you ask the sat-nav to, to sort of get you from Oxford to Cambridge, and if you say, don't use the motorway, then the sat-nav still has like loads of other ways it can try and get you from Oxford to Cambridge. But if you say, use the motorway, you rule out all of the other options, so you've just got this one way in which you're allowed to do something. And if we think about that in terms of agents, telling people not to harm is a bit like saying, don't use the motorway. And it still leaves you with all of these other options that you can pursue. But if you say, rescue this person, then you force the person to adopt that particular end, whether they want to or not. And so it's much more of an incursion into the way that people can shape their own lives. Now, of course, sometimes it's okay to do that. Sometimes we do have duties to rescue. But if you make those as demanding as the duty not to harm, then it looks like you really don't leave people very much space at all for choosing the ends that they want to, to pursue and shaping their own lives. I suppose when you say to rescue someone, I suppose that would fall into the category of, you know, giving financial aid to a war-torn country or a poverty-stricken country. And I, I suppose in a way, you know, we all donate what we can towards those causes, but I suppose that... Well, really, when you look at us, we could, especially in the Western world, we could donate more. So I suppose in a sense that we we are really responsible for certain deaths because we're not sending as much funding as we possibly could. Could could you look at it in that way? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's degrees of responsibility. So I think we're definitely responsible. You can be responsible for failing to prevent harm. And you can be responsible. I think it's certainly true that most people living in wealthier countries don't give as much as they ought to to people living in poorer countries and that 
therefore you can be responsible because of an omission. You can be responsible for failing to do something when you have a harmful outcome. But the question is, in terms of, or sort of the question that we're interested in is whether we're as responsible or whether we act as wrongly by failing to end than if we, say, went to that country and killed those people. And so the sort of the intuitive view is that even though we may act wrongly, it's not as bad as killing people. But it can still be very wrong, and it, clearly it is very wrong that there are lots of harms in the world that could be prevented easily with just more money, right? We could, we could eradicate malaria if people just gave more money. And it's clearly very wrongful that, doesn't, that, that that hasn't happened. Saying that there's a difference between doing and allowing isn't to say that allowings don't matter. They matter a lot. It's just the claim is that we're not as responsible or it's not as wrong, typically, to, to fail to save somebody as it would be to bring about their death. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed? I mean, I guess one thing to notice is that denying the distinction between doing and allowing is kind of neutral between whether we level up or level down. So... If you look at a view like Thule's, it kind of only gets you probably half the way to, to, to what you want because saying that killings is sort of morally identical to letting die, it's almost as if we assume that therefore we'd kind of suddenly get these really robust duties to rescue because re- um, failing to rescue would be as bad as we currently treat killing people. But we could, of course, go the other way and sort of level down and say, well, letting people die isn't all that bad. We let people die all the time, so I guess killing can't be that bad either. So one of the kind of interesting things is that there's sort of, it's not enough to just kind of get the parity claim, right? So this symmetry principle that Tool is defending isn't going to be enough because showing us that these things are on a par looks kind of open between levelling up and levelling down. But nobody's going to want to sort of level down and say, well, therefore, I guess killing isn't that bad. So what you then need to show is that all of the, the, the sort of comparable cases in which you allow harm are as bad as killing people. And so it's really, that's kind of almost where the, the really hard work starts, rather than just showing that these things are on a par. Hmm, yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, I, I suppose there's legal implications too. If, um, if you kill someone, but, you know, not donating money to, say, to save a child's life, I mean... You know, you can't be prosecuted legally for that, can you? Only morally. No, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I guess most people distinguish between, and it's, it's not ex- exactly clear how this distinction works, but between kind of cases in which I've got these sort of general duties to aid, say, through giving money to charity, and then these sort of immediate cases in which I have to rescue this child who's drowning right in front of me now. And most people think the sort of difference is like that I don't have to give money to Oxfam even though that would save a child's life, but I'd do something very wrong if I didn't say if I didn't save this child who's right in front of me. So this is something that um, Peter Singer's very famous paper, Family and Affluence and Morality, talks about. But it's, it's certainly true that in some countries you would be prosecuted in the case that you fail to save the child who's drowning right in front of you. And some countries have these sort of sort of Samaritan laws, right? So you. you you might not. You wouldn't be prosecuted for, for murder, right? But you would be. You you would commit a crime if you pass somebody in dire need and you didn't help them. And it's not true in, in in the UK or the US, but there's countries like France in which there, there are Samaritan laws, and so these things are criminal. But as you say, this doesn't extend more generally to sort of your general duties to aid. So people don't get prosecuted. So 
not giving to charity, for example, even though it could save lives you know, more easily, probably, if they gave to charity than pulling children out of ponds. Hmm. Uh, do you have any future study plans within this field? I've been working recently on uh, what we call agent relative reasons. So the idea that I get to care more about my interests than I do about the interests of strangers. And I can care more about my child than I do about your child and so on. And there's been some recent interesting work done recently by philosophers on the extent of the permissions that I get as a result of these agent relative reasons. So it seems like if your child's drowning in a pond and my child's drowning in a pond, I'd be permitted to say, just save my child without tossing a coin. So it's not like I need to give both children a fair chance of rescue. I can just save my child. Whereas if they were strangers, it looks like I ought to toss a coin and give each a fair chance of rescue. So it's kind of the standard view that I'd be allowed to save my child on the basis of my agent relative reasons. Um, but it doesn't look like I could, say, kill your child in order to save my child's life. So it looks like here, too, it really matters whether there's this distinction between allowing harm and causing harm. And some philosophers have recently started to think that maybe actually agent-relative reasons can contribute to justifications for killing, as well as to justifications for letting people die. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about recently. I'm not sure how much progress I've made yet, but um, that's, I think, a really interesting question. It is very interesting. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking to Professor Helen Froh about the moral distinction between killing and letting die.